This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. Welcome to anyone that hasn't been welcomed already to the event. <laughs> welcome to somebody at almost every single session, so welcome. Uh, yeah, this morning I'm going to give a short talk on renunciation, and then Vajrachatara is going to give a talk on the bodhicitta. Uh, I've got a slight concern about this talk. I do get concerns about my talk, so I think I was thinking. I was thinking as I was walking across the lawn. I was thinking, what do I feel really concerned about? And um, I feel concerned that uh, that I won't communicate to you the inspiration that I feel at this moment about the practice of renunciation. And um, it's like it's like maybe it's like I've been walking around this dream or this sort of vague idea about how it would be a really good idea if I got enlightened. Or it'd be a really good idea if I got more concentrated, or it'd be a really good idea if I what what would it be um, became more spacious and kind, something like this. And then one day somebody sat down with me and said, "Okay, so how are you going to do that?" And we worked out a little plan about how that could happen. And it was such a relief because I realised you could plan something and you could work out what you need to do, and then you could just simply surrender to it. And in that process, you would achieve the very thing that you wanted. So I'm a little bit in alive, that's very alive for me at the moment, that sense of things are possible, and uh, renunciation is part of that. And just occasionally when I was touching with the text, um, you know, there are a few lines where I think, my goodness, it's like, you know, it's like we're all surrounded by stuff, aren't we? We're all surrounded by things we want. We're all surrounded by things that we find pleasurable or whatever. And, you know, there are different times in these, these verses where Banti or whoever is saying to us, if you simply work with that attraction, you will be free from it. And I, I can't quite believe it, but there's a bit of me that is slightly believing it a bit more than I did. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to communi- communicate that to you. Um, but just to say, the renunciation is a very alive practice uh, and can be a very alive practice. It's not just a, a denial practice. Yeah, so I'm going to... I'm going to look at renunciation just generally, then I'm going to look at Sankhapa's verses, and then I'm going to look at areas of renunciation, (coughs) possible areas of renunciation. Um, So I looked up in the dictionary, just to start with the dictionary, I looked up in the dictionary, renunciation uh, means self-denial, giving up of things, And I've got here, look honestly at your experience of the false refugees, which I'm going to come back to later. But I think sometimes the the difficult thing about giving something up is that we've got a rather romantic romantic idea about what it is. But if we really looked at our experience, we'd discover that it really wasn't like that. 
it isn't what we think it is. And then Sangharachita uses the translation of withdrawal. So withdrawal has got a slightly different um, um, definition. It means retire from presence or place, go aside or apart, and adopt detached mental attitude. So I'm going to mostly use the word renunciation, but withdrawal is a good word as well, and that's what uh, Sangharachita uses in his translation. So we're going to be looking at the aspect of the path, which means the giving up of things and the retiring from present, the presence, or going aside or becoming a part, um, separate from something. Where I want to start is just to say that uh, renunciation is a part of everybody's life, probably already. If you've got anything you want to do in your life, a value, something you want to achieve, uh, something you've got to make a priority, so that could be a career, it could be a family, uh, it could be a value you're trying to develop in yourself, you're going to be practicing renunciation somewhere. You can't really make choices and say yes to one thing and not have to say no to something else. And if you've got, say, if you've got a family, you're probably saying no to a lie-in on Sunday morning, for instance. I mean, just basically. And mostly you don't resent that because you know exactly why you're doing it and what you're doing it for. And um, uh, it just makes sense to you. That giving up of your Sunday morning lie-in makes sense to you. So I'm going to start uh, with um, a poem by Naomi Shiab Nye called The Art of Disappearing which I really love. Here's the poem. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. <laughs> Someone telling you in a loud voice that they once wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. Then reply. If they say, we should get together say, why? It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees. The monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognises you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in ten years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. So poets have got a very nice um, angle on life, haven't they? And she's obviously in touch with something herself there. So maybe being a poet, she's got an ambition or she's got ideas about what she wants to do with her life. So she's inviting us. Well, she says, like, look at parties and remember what parties are like. Look at your experience honestly and see, see it for what it is. Don't maintain unrealistic expectations from activities that never deliver. deliver. Lama Yeshe says in a book called Introduction to Tantra, he says, renunciation is not the same as giving up pleasure or denying ourselves happiness. It means giving up on unreal expectations about ordinary pleasures. We don't expect them to give us ultimate lasting satisfaction. 
quite interesting, isn't it, how um, uh, renunciation is about giving up unreal expectations. I mean, how free would your life be if you just gave up that? I can, yeah. Renunciation is not the same as giving up pleasure or denying ourselves happiness. It means giving up on unreal expectations about ordinary pleasures. We don't expect them to give us ultimate lasting satisfaction. But I think if you just remember that thing about just give up on unreal uh, expectations about what I'm engaged with. See what that looks like in your life. And then the poet's telling us, it's not that you don't love them anymore, you're simply trying to remember something too important to forget. So uh, renunciation is circling and based on a sense of continuity, mindfulness of a continuity of purpose, sorry, continuity of purpose. You know what you're trying to do with your life. You know what you're trying to achieve. Therefore, you're making active choices and you're making them well. Andrew Cohen says, Renunciation is where you are are allowing yourself to be obedient to the call of the heart. I got all these quotes when um, Vajadevi was doing fundraising for Akashavana. She collected loads and loads of quotes and things. Um all around renunciation and also about uh, money and all sorts of things. I've got quite a lot of them. They're fantastic, aren't they? Renunciation is where you are allowing yourself to be obedient to the call of the heart. So what are you really wanting to say yes to in your life? Because to really say yes to that thing, you're probably going to have to say no somewhere else. And often we keep it very vague. What we're saying yes to, we keep very, very vague. And then the procedure or the process or the way, the plan of action, we keep vague as well. And then walk around feeling like a leaf. No, you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. So she's brought in here that that reflection on impermanence. When you realise you don't have a lot of time, uh, you make up your mind more um, readily and it's clearer to you what your priorities are. So following on from that point about continuity of purpose, Um, Sangaraksha says in his little booklet on 15 points for new and old order members he says the fifth point think more in terms of renunciation and in there he says we could say that really there is no spiritual development without renunciation so we cannot think exclusively in terms of spiritual development taking that language literally we also really do have to think in terms of renunciation There is no spiritual development without renunciation, without giving up something. We cannot always wait for things to just drop away. Sometimes we have to actually give them up, even though it might be rather painful at first. And similarly, there is no renunciation without spiritual development. I'm not speaking here about renunciation through feelings of irrational guilt, which you should not be having having anyway. So we should not think of development and renunciation as antithetical, much less still contradictory. If we renounce unskillful things or practices, words, activities, we really will develop spiritually. It really will help us. So think more in terms of renunciation. You'll notice I'm not saying think only in terms of renunciation, but think more in terms of renunciation. So a question for you. Is it true that there is no spiritual development without renunciation? 
and no renunciation without spiritual development. Okay, so I'll have a quick look at the verses. In Sankabar's verses. I'll just read them straight through. We've got two translations. So one by Banti. Sorry, Tina, I've got your copy. I'll give it back to you in a sec. Without a pure withdrawal, there is no means to still the longing for a happy outcome of the sea of existence. And by craving for existence too, those who have bodies are fettered all about. Therefore, seek first withdrawal. The fancies of this life are banished by keeping in mind that we have no time to spare of opportunities and advantages hard to find. The fancies of the hereafter are banished by repeatedly thinking of acts and their fruits infallible, the miseries of the round. When, by so practising, there is born not even for a moment, for a moment, desire for the round's well-being, and a sense of longing for deliverance all day and night arises, then it is that withdrawal is, withborn, is born. And the other translation, Geshe Wangyal, how do you say his name? Does anybody know? Geshe Wangye. Geshe Wangye. Let's see, where does it start? Those with bodies are bound for the craving. Those with bodies are bound by the craving for existence. Without pure renunciation, there is no way to still attraction to the pleasures of samsara. Thus, from the outset, seek renunciation. Leisure and opportunity are difficult to find. There is no time to waste. Reverse attraction to this life. Reverse attraction to future lives. Think repeatedly of the infallible effects of karma and the miseries of this world. Contemplating this, when you do not, for an instant, wish the pleasures of samsara, and day and night remain intent on liberation, you have then produced renunciation. So the, verse, the first verse is about why one should develop renunciation. Without a pure withdrawal, this is Banti, without a pure withdrawal there is no means to still the longing for a happy outcome of the sea of existence. So unless we get a handle on ourselves in this area, we will always be hankering after the pleasures of samsara. And we will make it very, very difficult for ourselves to free ourselves from that longing or that hankering. It's a bit like saying, I don't know, um, I'm trying to give up chocolate and living surrounded by chocolate and thinking you can, if you just had a little bit every now and then, it'll be fine. And you know what it'll do. You have a little bit at 11 o'clock in the morning, don't you? And then you think... I didn't eat much for lunch. I'll just have a little bit this afternoon as well. And then you think supper wasn't much either. And before you know it, you're entrenched in this whole kind of habit and way of being and in your life. So um, hmm. he's saying this is all going to end in tears. It's all going to end in tears. And uh, you're going to have to curb your appetite. 
curb that, um, that desire or that hankering. And you're going to have to work with that. Don't think you're going to be able to get free from that attraction of always thinking everything's going to be alright, being attracted to things are going to work out for you in this lifetime, um, desire for a happy life, all that sort of stuff. You're not going to get free of that if you're continually uh, indulging in things that reinforce that pattern, reinforce that pattern. So without pure renunciation, there is no way to still attraction to the pleasures of samsara. I remember saying to um, I remember saying to Vajragita quite a few years ago. Um, we were talking about uh, somebody I was going out with at the time, somebody I was in a relationship with, and I said to her in a slightly proud way at one point, "Well, I didn't fall in love with them," and she said, "No, Sadhanandi, but you wanted to." <laughs> oh God! I thought, "Oh dear, I'm only half there, aren't I?" Really. <laughs> It was quite an interesting thing because I think sometimes what we hanker after, we don't get it anyway, but we still hanker after it, don't we? Um, so, in a way, I didn't fall in love. I think I could see through what I was doing enough to know I couldn't completely fall for that person. But at the same time, the desire to fall for that person was so strong, that desire to just give myself over. The desire to have this complete sort of joining up or something was so strong. Um, I couldn't quite give up on that, that hope that that possibly would happen, even though mechanically it almost didn't, wasn't working. So. Alan Bennett said, um, most people can do without the objects they own. It's shopping for them that they can't give up. <laughs> He's fab, isn't he? These poets and these artists, these um, writers... So what is it about shopping? It's partly the experience of shopping, but it's also that, that thing, that belief that there really is the pair of trousers. There really is the, the piece of software, or whatever it is. I don't know, you know, the kind of computers or whatever. There really is the telephone that's going to make our life, it's going to transform our life or something. Uh, so that's just very interesting. It's, I think this is what he's getting at. Most people can do without the objects they own. So actually giving them up, we could, give up, we could give up the telephone or we could give up those trousers. But the shopping for them, the possibility they might really do it, that, that hope, that continual hope and longing, when are we going to face that? So we're in a process of choosing. We're in a process of saying yes to those things that are helpful to our growth and saying no to those things that are not. We're in a process of choosing and establishing freedom. I think this whole area of freedom is very interesting because renunciation sounds like you're not free to choose. And of course you're saying you're not free to choose. If you want to get slim, you are not free to choose to eat a lot of chocolate. That's as simple as that really, isn't it? So, but we've got this idea freedom is about choice. And, and yet, what the Dharma's teaching us is to really be free. You've got to make the choices that are going to develop your ability to be free from the lack of choice that you have in relationship to certain things. You know, I don't have freedom in relationship to chocolate or to um, the archers or to my cat 
Now, I don't have freedom in that sense, in the sense that I'm still a bit driven in all those areas. And, um, and yet I can maintain this idea that I've got freedom because I choose, as if I, as if I choose. But we don't choose. What do we choose? Where do you really choose? And where are you really driven? So what you're trying to establish in yourself is a really deep freedom, uh, a real point of freedom for yourself that you can move, uh, take into um, all areas of your life. I've got here mastery and empowerment in orange, so that's good. Uh, so that's what, I mean, I think that is partly what drives me, that desire to have real mastery over myself, to really feel empowered in every situation that I move into. And I know when I don't have that. And that's in all sorts of situations. And what is it going to take for me to get that freedom back? So, but we have to really want to be free, really free in a proper, in the real sense. And most of us don't. Like, I want to be free of falling in love. I just don't want to give up the idea that that might be possible. So, just play around with that. What, you know, do you really, really want freedom? What does freedom mean to you? So the next, um, the next set of verses is more about how one develops, how one develops this. Hmm. I mean, actually, because uh, it's a particular text, the how and the why and the what and all that sort of stuff is very technical. I'm not going into very much of it. So there's all sorts of um, meditations stacked behind a lot of these different uh, verses. So Bhante says, the, uh, the fancies of this life are banished by keeping in mind that we have no time to spare of opportunities and advantages hard to find. The fancies of the hereafter are banished by repeatedly thinking of acts and their fruits infallible, the miseries of the round. And the other translation says, leisure and opportunity are difficult to find. There is no time to waste. Reverse act- attraction to this life. Reverse attraction to future lives. Think repeatedly of the infallible effects of karma and the miseries of this world. So I'm just going to go into a couple of things here. Leisure and opportunity are difficult to find. And it's because they're difficult to find that there is no time to waste. So this is focusing our mind moti- uh, on a motivation. So, so what is what is leisure? Uh, so leisure is, in the Tibetan school, leisure is to be free of the eight ways that a person can lack freedom. And I'm just going to list them simply. I will stick this talk up on the notice board, so if you don't want to write it all down, then just leave it. You'll see it listed. So leisure is uh, where we are when we're free of the eight ways that a person can lack freedom. And the eight ways that a person can lack freedom is to, to hold wrong views, such as not believing in karma, to be born as an animal or as a hang- hungry ghost or as a hell being, to be born in a land where the Buddha's teachings are not available, to be born in a land where, uh, that lacks morality, and to be born as a human being with disabilities that stop us from practicing. And to be born in a temporary paradise of pleasure. So all these things 
are going to, um, what's the word? Uh, well, they're going to undermine our ability to connect with the Dharma. They're going to undermine our ability to make changes and to, um, well, have mastery and uh, be empowered. So, all of us sitting in this room will, ha well, as far as I can tell, all of us sitting in this room will be free of the eight ways that a person can lack freedom. So all of us have leisure under that school of thinking. <coughs> and then we have fortune or opportunity. And these are inner and outer opportunities. So on the inside, we're born as a human being. Hmm, I'm wondering if this is... Oh. We're born in a central land with traditional morality. We're born with all our faculties intact and we have not committed deeds such as killing one's parents that's going to have such a huge effect on us that that's inescapable. And we have faith in the teachings. And our outer opportunities are that we live in a world where a Buddha has come or is taught, so we're in contact with the Dharma. His teachings are still spoken. His teachings have not been lost. People are around us that are practicing and practitioners generally enjoy the kind of support that they require. So I think, again, even if you just don't go into the technical details, I think it's worth noting that we have a life of leisure and opportunity. Um, when you lead retreats at Taraloka and you see the kind of women that come to Taraloka, you know how much leisure and opportunity there is in people's lives. I mean, the fact that as women... You lot can practice, we lot, us lot, can practice the Dharma, be in contact with the Dharma. We can create enough money and leisure time to actually attend retreats. Um, we're not so concerned or preoccupied with keeping our children from starvation, keeping our children from war. Um, we don't have to practice in, in a secrecy where our lives are in danger. Um, and we're not, our life does not demand so much upon us that we haven't got any, any room to think of anything else. And I saw uh, about 20 or 30 years ago, and I went to Egypt, um, I was watching donkeys um, circle a well. You know how they draw up water from a well and they have these donkeys that walk around and they're harnessed in? They just walked around and around and around. And they have a kind of dullness in their face because of that action. And I had this awful moment, this was long before I got involved with Dharma, I had this awful moment where I saw those faces on some of the people around that well. Uh, their, their life of tragedy and sort of um, survival, I think, was just the same. So take these opportunities do not arise very often and make use of them. Don't just assume you'll have them forever. Politi politics can change. Financial circumstances can change. We all know that. We know that quite a lot at the moment. You don't know what your life looks like in the future. So contemplate the value, our value, of our own leisure and freedom, or our own opportunities. 
and also contemplate how hard they are to find. You know, when you take humanity as a whole population, uh, uh, the people practicing, the people able to practice, the people that have those kind of conditions that just been described are very, very small indeed. So don't get distracted. Don't get distracted with your life. You've got an opportunity now to use it. Don't waste it. Don't waste it on the worldly winds. Uh, don't get caught up in things that just um, don't deliver the goods. Then the last two verses, or the last verse, sorry, two translations. When by so practising there is born not even for a moment desire for the round's well-being and a sense of longing for deliverance all day and night arises, then it is that withdrawal is, is born. And the other translation. Contemplating this, when you do not for an instant wish the pleasures of samsara and day and night remain intent on liberation, you have then produced renunciation. So renunciation here isn't just a state of what you're trying to do, it's actually a state of being. So you're not experiencing any desire for worldly um, happiness, the worldly wins. Uh, in the commentary, there's this lovely line, the thought of achieving freedom rushes into your mind and you genuinely want freedom. It's very interesting, you know, just checking in when you're doing something, having a conversation with somebody, just checking in, what am I really wanting from this? Am I generally wanting freedom or am I just feeding the worldly winds? Am I just wanting this person to like me? Or am I really wanting um, the communication to move forward? Uh, you know, what are you feeding right now? I don't mean right now, well, you could think about that. Right now, what are you feeding? In your mind, what are you feeding? You know, are you genuinely in, uh, interested in the spiritual life, in transforming your life, in transforming yourself? Or are you doing what one teacher said to one of my friends, polishing the wheel, which is quite <laughs> good. And the Dharma isn't a bad polish. It will polish the wheel to some extent. You know, we are a bit freer. We are a bit more empowered. We do have a bit more, you know, if we have more metta, life is a bit more pleasant. If we're more mindful, life is a bit more pleasant. So the wheel does run a bit more smoothly. So are you just polishing the wheel or are you really trying to do something right now? Another question for you. What is the difference between disgruntlement and disillusionment? So Sangharaksha sometimes says uh, we need to be disillusioned with um, worldly happiness, not disgruntled. So I'm just going to end now with just a little flurry around uh, what to give up. Everything. <laughs> what to give up. So I'm on a bit of a track because of um, a year ago I led some study in um, Sheffield and I got very taken with a particular line from Know Your Mind and I've been using it ever since. So the line is, this is from Sangharachita, the nature of samsara is compulsion. So what we're giving up is compulsion. 
So where do you function in a compulsive way? Activity. So I'm going to list three things that you can go into. Activity, stories, and unreal hopes and expectations of Dharma practice. Um, activity. So we can have, we can be compulsive around activity. I can be compulsive around activity. Getting things done. Um, sometimes when I'm whizzing about Taraloka, I make a bargain with myself. I think, okay, it'd be really good if I went over to the retreat centre and did such and such. And I think, okay, Sanandi, you're only allowed to go across the car park if you can walk mindfully. Which is quite interesting, a bargain. Mm-hmm. Can you walk mindfully across the car park? So I have to, well, okay, all right, I'll walk mindfully across the car park. <laughs> Just to sort of give myself a little break between com- one compulsive activity and the other. It doesn't look good. A compulsive activity does not look good on people. Myself and uh, Karen Avapi used to have a bit of a joke, actually, when she used to work at Taraloka. Because she could sometimes have compulsive activity and I could have it as well. And um, I remember once Karen Avapi saying to me, Nandi, you you're a bit driven. I, I see you're quite driven at the moment. And um, uh, I, I think you just need to stop and wind down. I said, yes, Karen Avapi, I know. It, it doesn't look any better on me than it does on you, does it? <laughs> I make some sort of line. But it's so interesting. It looks very unattractive when you see people like that, just very sort of driven and they don't have choice in what they're doing. So just check in with yourself. What's really going on there? What is the compulsion? Then stories. God, we're really quite compulsive around stories. Um, there's this lovely... Um, story that Pema Chodron tells actually about a boat crashing into another boat which I've told in a few retreats and it's where um, somebody's on a boat and it's night time I think and there's a, they see that there's a boat coming towards them and they shout out get back get back you're going to crash you're going to crash into me and the boat does come f- move towards them and crash into them and so the person on the boat's absolutely furious and he jumps onto the other boat determined to have a real go at whoever was driving this boat, this other boat. And there's nobody there, it's just a loose boat on the ocean. And it's just a very good metaphor for what's often happening, which is we think somebody's just crashing into our boat when all they're doing is there's nobody there, there's nothing going on, it's not there at all. So, and it's just based on stories. We're telling ourselves stories all the time about what's going on. We're, very, we're quite compulsive about that. Uh, recently I was staying with a couple of friends and um, I was staying in one of their rooms and I was reading a particular book, a sort of self-help book and uh, I accidentally left it in the room and I went off to stay somewhere else and then I phoned them and said, oh God, I've left my book in your room, can you give it to me the next time you see me? They said, oh God, Sanandi, I assumed that belonged to the person whose room you were staying in and I've got into two hours of stories about how they didn't talk to me about how they were reading this book and they never share their lives with me and they haven't mentioned this book to me. She said, I did two hours on that. I said, it's my book, I'm sorry, can you send it back to me? (laughs) So just watch the story. We're involved in stories all the time. Just watch them. And hopes and expectations of Dharma practice. Yes, well, we do get quite a lot of that, don't we? One area where I reflected on this was um, when I watched a couple of people resign as chairman 
this was quite a long time ago actually, and they were they just stepped right out, and then they were quite um, resentful of their, how their lives had been. And I thought, gosh, I wonder how does one engage with, say, being chair and not get resentful, not end up resentful? And that's quite an interesting question, actually. How does one engage with anything and not get resentful? And I suspect it's to do with we're not, we've got unconscious hopes and expectations of the thing that we're doing. And that's what leads us into resentment, because it, we, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen like that. And we also crave experiences. We crave experiences from Dharma practice. And um, recently I was reading a, a little lecture by Sangharachita called um, Enlightenment as Experience and Non-Experience. And he talks a little bit about these, this in that lecture. It's worth looking at. He says, um, if, you're a bit, if you've got a lot of craving, neurotic craving about spiritual life, then you can um, begin to expect experiences from three main areas. You expect them from somewhere special. You expect to have an experience that comes from somewhere special, from someone special, or from something special. And then he describes that. I'm going to try and do it very briefly. So from somewhere special means somewhere exotic. So we're interested in the exotic rather than just interested in saying truth. Um, we're interested because it's Tibetan. Whether it actually fits in with reality or not doesn't really matter so much, but the fact that it's got lots of red and green bits on it is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're fascinated by the exotic rather than the truth. Then, um, when we want it from someone else, we think it's going to come from a particular teacher, a particular relationship, or a guru. Uh, we look for it from that particular relationship. This is uh, a bit tricky. Um, and that, the fact that we're going, to get, we're going to get that experience from someone because we believe in them completely. So we have to have absolute faith in them, that what they say... Um, what they ask us to do, all of that's going to... Um, that's the word of God, I suppose. That's using uh, Sangharachita's language. You've got to believe in a guru who is God. So we, we're looking for a particular relationship that's going to give us an experience, that we, the experience that we want from the spiritual life. And then we look from something, and he says uh, this can come from us um, hooking in or homing in on a particular meditation technique. So it says, um, this consists in attaching exaggerated importance to particular methods of practice, especially with particular methods of meditation. We think that if only we can only find the right one, the right technique, it will automatically give us the experience. Sometimes, of course, we think we have found the right one, and we become very dogmatic and very intolerant about that. We want to dismiss all other methods as worthless. Only our own technique is the right one, or the good one the only one that is of any use. And we forget that there are so many different methods of meditation, so many different concentration techniques, especially in Buddhism. Buddhism is very rich in this field, and all of them work. Every single one of them has been tried and tested for centuries. Every single one of them works. One method may be more suited to a particular temperament or a particular stage of development, but we can never say that any one method is intrinsically better than any other. 
Okay, so then what he goes on to say, and I'm just going to mention this, is how you counteract that neurotic craving for experience in the spiritual life is to look towards growth, work and duty. And I'm not going to say anything, you can just have a look at the lecture. You can look that up yourself. But what I will say, and what I found very interesting was, he's asking you to go very broad in your spiritual life. If you get overly concentrated on looking for an experience, maybe the antidote to that is to look more roundedly. That's why I say growth is so important. If you just think, am I growing? You can usually answer yes. If you think to yourself, am I having a big special experience? Mm -hmm. You know, that's more complicated. So, uh, and I think that's one of actually the FWO's achievements is that it's put mm, the spiritual life into very, it's put it into indirect methods. Growth is in communities, centres, retreats, uh, communication. It's in a lot of broader things than just simply say meditation. Hmm. Say one more thing. Sorry about this. I've got three things on this page. I'm just wondering what to say. Um, one thing. Okay. Uh, discuss. In somewhere in your life, discuss this. Commitment is primary. Lifestyle is secondary. What does that mean? Banti brings this out, Sangaracha brings this out when he's talking in, um, he's talking in a Vimla Kirti Nadesha seminar and he says it means that renunciation is essentially a spiritual thing, a spiritual activity. The outer action is of value only to the extent that it is an expression of an inner attitude. So what's important for us is we understand what our inner attitude is. What are we really trying to develop in ourselves? Um, you know, if the inner you have an inner attitude of kindness, then it's quite clear what you're going to have to give up. Uh, if you have an inner attitude of, uh, if you have an inner value of being more centered, then it becomes clearer what you're going to have to give up. So commitment to the value, commitment to what you're really trying to achieve, is the primary. How you go to, are going to go about doing it is up to you, but your lifestyle, the way that you're going to go, the way that you live your life is going to have to support that value, that commitment. So renunciation is developed through contemplating that we need to change, that things need to change, that things aren't really working for us. Um, it's based on us realising we've got choices to make that will take us in a more conducive direction, in the direction of the spiritual life, in the direction of growth. And uh, it means becoming more free and it means renouncing things that we begin to see create suffering, like the activity of compulsion is a, a, an activity of suffering. And through the contemplation of our own suffering, there we then start noticing uh, 
other people are involved in those things as well. Other people are also suffering in the same way that we are. And that's the nature of Vajatara's talk. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.